Hey there, you cool cats. Hanging with Jeff and Stacy. We're back in action in our normal format. Stacy's here. We're sipping some tea. We're hanging out in a beautiful, rainy Portland afternoon. Talking about what I'm talking about with my middle school kids, the Drake equation. Now, I'm not a uh, cosmologist, an astrophysicist, or any of that. But having had the opportunity to break this equation down, the Drake equation from Frank Drake, who just recently died after a nice long life as a, as a scientist and uh, the guy who came up with this amazing equation that helps us to discuss and understand the probability of life that we could communicate with, intelligent life that we could communicate with somewhere in the Milky Way galaxy. How possible is it? Is it possible that aliens will visit us and rescue us from the madness we find ourselves in? Is it possible they're going to come and destroy us and make us dinner? What was this about for us? Well, this conversation that you're about to hear is Stacy and I talking about not just what the Drake equation is, but what it says for people who are religious, specifically religious in the Western theistic sense and what it says about mysticism and cosmic dread i can't think of a more interesting conversation to have myself so hey if this is something you want to join in with us thanks for being here let's go for the ride let's see how far it can take us All right, Stacy. When I was a kid, Star Wars, that was my religion. I was Jedi. That was the religion. So much so that I put a blindfold on thinking that Luke Skywalker would do this. <laughs> I walked off in uh, Boulder, fell into a, a, a crevasse yeah. as a little kid, thinking that the force would work. Force didn't work, <laughs> but that idea of going off into space and hyperdrives and all that was really important to me. And I feel like kids don't get as excited about that any, anymore. Well, what are you seeing? Well, well I, I would say that, um, I mean, it, I remember back in the day, I think I was fifth grade, I guess. I don't know. Um, but the, the whole challenger thing and, and there was, oh, you yeah. know, we had like, there was the space programs, the, the catastrophe in yeah. the sky. Yeah. There, um, there was that. So there was, you know, definitely more talk in and more excitement in a certain sense about the, the newness of trying to put, you know, people into space. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it wasn't fully new, but some people didn't really believe that we actually landed on the moon. You know, there's all that, oh, there was that. Of yeah, sure, sure. <laughs> stuff, but you know, here we are watching real astronauts taking off and these real rockets. And then obviously the horror of, you know, um, the challenger exploding while we were all at school. So that was, that was an interesting that was a thing. Um, yeah. moment. So my thought is, is that, um, I think because, you know, the technology has come so far now and now we can look on the internet and see all of these, you know, beautiful pictures of outer space and all of this or whatever. There's less of, um, uh, it's always a mystery, but there's less of a, a mystery about the possibility of going into space. Ah, uh, that makes sense. Yeah. Cause when I was a little kid, there was always a little bit of a lingering sense that there was something more to see, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, in the early seventies, um, you know, um, pe people were still, fresh off the idea that maybe there'd be some intelligent life in our solar system. 
people were pretty clear by that point that that probably not. But, you know, like that was just a few decades before you have science fiction writers talking about Martians, like mm-hmm. Robert Heinlein and, and even the, the Christian author C.S. Lewis. Mm-hmm. There's something going on on Mars. But the, the Internet changed everything with our access to information and, yeah. and the ability to, you know, access to a lot of the photography and everything else that has been done with our, you know, stuff in space. So I think that has drastically changed some of the things also, I think we are, um, I don't know, a little bit more realistic, you know, uh, yeah. about what we think can happen, at least currently. There's obviously some people that are exploring, you know, uh, you know, maybe some other possibilities of outer space. But I think that, um, I don't know. It's just not that same. People are still talking about UFOs visiting us. And, I think uh, it's moved more that direction. Yes. It's like more like, Which okay, if we're not fully going to go all, you know, colonize space necessarily not yet yeah um at least not unless you're super wealthy i guess right (laughs) is that a consideration i was gonna get into that that's a that's a separate thing there's there's what the kids are thinking about Uh i want to grow up to be an astronaut that's that's petered out now that i'm a middle school teacher not seeing people saying that people used to say that people aren't saying that anymore and not because of the thing blowing up it's just not the mystery as it it used to be and where rich people do think of it like that yeah bezos and, and elon musk certainly and I, I mean, I don't think um, as a country, we're not probably as excited to pour as much money into this is the, the space key. program. That's right. That's right. So that's where I'm going with this. In my beautiful, beautiful existence between the hours of 745 and about three o'clock, I get the opportunity to be in a space where there aren't grades, but there's a lot of exploration. And the way that we assess student learning, we call them. Learners, scholars, don't call them students because we don't want the hierarchy, but you get the point. The way we, accept, uh, we, we, we assess their learning is through their ability to narrate uh, layered projects mm. that are interdisciplinary. Uh, but we do have sections. So I have uh, my, my welcome group. These are the kids I love so much to, to kind of carry through the year. Then I have a literacy group where we're reading Ursula Le Guin, The Dispossessed. We're talking about anarchism of all things ah, and space. Um, and quantum physics and gender roles, that's pretty fun. And then I have a a mathematics uh, or numeracy group. And in each of these groups, we not only do the basics, like we learn our, you know, addition and subtraction of fractions, um, but we also work on a term project that is going to bring all of that together. So it's, it's a lot of fun. It can be daunting as a teacher. You can't just photocopy off a bunch of sheets, you've got to come up with something creative and unique and it's changing year to year. It keeps you on your toes. And I can tell you this, as much as it is tiring sometimes to kind of think about a new idea, boy, it's more invigorating. I'm not just rehashing the same PowerPoints um, in the, you know, three sections of the 101. Everything's new every day, really. Right. And so anyway, um, one of the things we're looking at is how do you motivate kids intrinsically to learn about this stuff? Um, and, and for me, it's been fun to kind of get kids excited about the idea of space exploration, something that was very common when I was young, but not as common afterwards. I can reflect on it this way. By the time Bill Clinton was in office, Mm -hmm. when I was a young person, I didn't sense that I or anybody else cared about space because it was getting boring. It was like you could travel to Arizona and back. You could say, well, there aren't a lot of trees in the, in the desert there. Um, in fact, it's a desert on Mars that looks like Arizona (laughs) without the chaparral, without the, the barrel cactus, that sort of thing. Um, and so, and so like, what's the point? 
Yeah. Right. Like it, it became kind of uninteresting um, in, in that there, there, there really wasn't much to see. It was, you know, you could travel a long time, mm-hmm. but there's not a lot to see is what it seems like. What we have been able to do is explore some things more from a theoretical standpoint, from the question of astrophysics. Um, people are interested in the multiverse theory. They're interested in um, entanglement theory, wormholes, black holes. These are all things. And strangely enough, we have increasingly credible reports from pilots, uh, military personnel, folks that are otherwise not, you know, wing nuts, pretty serious about these uh, craft that seem to be cruising around. But by no means does that tell us that these craft are from somewhere else. Entirely possible that these are craft that are beyond our current technology, but somebody here yeah, has been working planet, on it. Yeah. Heck, it could be the Atlanteans underwater. I don't doesn't matter, right? Like in a certain sense, when you get to the Drake equation, as we'll see in a second, um, you know, it seems statistically to me more probable that an advanced civilization is hiding under the ocean, given these numbers, than it is that there's one that's within a few hundred light years away that they can get here. That said, our knowledge is always expanding. So who knows? But let's get let's get into it. If well, you don't you, mind. Yeah. well, yeah. And yeah, I mean, you asked a yeah. question. You said, um, "How do you get the kids intrinsically motivated?" Mm-hmm. And I mean, I would imagine with anything, what you have you have to kind of figure out what their interests are, and then whatever yeah. subject you're looking at, then apply it to the things that they're interested in. Because right. you know, some of the kids that. You know, all of a sudden you bring out math and they just glaze over. Yes. And they're done. Well, most of these kiddos were. <laughs> and so was, uh, that, and this is the, the Drake equation is my answer to it. In other right. words, how can I make this? A lot of the kids in my section are not STEM kids. They're not science, technology, engineering, and math focused. They're artsy people. They're creative people. They might be in a section with me where we're doing creative writing and poetry. And we're talking about world religions. All of these things are fun. But how do you get excited about the math? You've got to understand that the math leads you somewhere, that it's going to help you solve a problem that you want to solve. Right. And so for me, you know, the question is, (laughs) the the Drake equation answers this very much. Uh, Should we, as a society, invest in making this world a better place or escaping this world? Should we hope to make contact with a culture that can help us uh, maybe even communicating, even if we can't see each other, can there be another civilization that helps us to understand how we were able, uh, how they were able to uh, overcome the problems of nuclear energy, uh, fossil fuels, that sort of thing? I think we've, one of the previous podcasts recently that we kind of very briefly touched on this, but I think it is a little scary that uh, some of the richest people on this planet are looking more at escape than they are um, at putting resources to helping to save the planet, which to me, that's pretty scary. Um, (laughs) It's either just something fun they want to do. It could be hubris or it could be a calculation that they've made that if you look at the numbers, we're possibly like beyond the point of no return or something. The most most terrifying thing, I don't mean to to freak you out, dear listener, but the the most terrifying thing that you and I, Stacey, noticed in our travels, in our truck camper and, 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 uh, van over the years, uh, last few years, I think was when we went to the biodome. Interestingly, the oh, biodome yeah, yeah. associated with Bannon of all things at some 
one point Bannon, uh, who recently got uh, several months in prison for being the uh, the criminal that he is, allegedly, or and now I guess uh, officially. But yeah, in the biodome, basically, they are able to basically come up with sort of um, what recreate our the Earth's various e- ecosystems, right? Yeah. And then toy with it and say, okay, here's what happens when we have this much carbon dioxide right. or whatever. And at the ocean, they could do the ocean part. They do the rainforest right. one. They get a little water and reef in there. they pretty much already, well, by the time we were there, what, that was maybe a couple of years ago. Um, yeah. They realized that our oceans were past the point of no return. Yeah. And we were either already there or super close to the rainforest with the carbon dioxide. Um, being past the point of no return. Yes. And I think the biggest issue was what's going on with the oceans. Yes. And yeah. So if, if you, if you, if you find that. Right. And, and so I, you know, you look at all of the different, I don't know, the different changes in our weather patterns and everything's getting a little bit mm-hmm. more volatile, mm-hmm. you know, we get more hurricanes, more, you know, hotter, more extreme heats, more extreme colds, like all these different, you know. Portland extremes. felt like uh, like Corona the other day. <laughs> yeah, Corona, in California. Fact, there was, was one of you know our smoking. patients that came in. You know, like yeah, it was you know it's been really nice. We had a great weekend late October. You know, Stacy felt- manages a, a wellness center, a couple of spaces there. People coming in for medical care of uh, yeah. you know, alternative variety. And so you know they're like, you know, it's really nice. It's great that we had this fun weekend, but I am really worried for the the planet given that they were saying that this is not normal whatsoever in portland for that long to have that warm and not hard really we almost had almost no rain up until recently fortunately the rain is back and it's a good old uh, portland for for now all of a sudden it feels it feels cold and you know it's i'm I'm enjoying it i'm snuggling up i got my hot tea here as you said before sorry i I digress no so so the biodome though like that was that was intentionally um a way of understanding could we as human beings create a self-sustaining space that was that was hermetically sealed from the outside world Uh, there's a documentary about it could we do this on mars could we do it on the moon and um, if so, is this going to provide some kind of help? I would suspect that if we can do something on Mars, we probably could do it in a uh, environmentally degraded, you know, riverside. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, and and then and then they were more recently using it to experiment with the various changes that could be that would be happening in mm-hmm. in our own um, in the various ecosystems and that kind of stuff, right? And just yes. to see what happens. So, what does the Drake equation? what is this going to do for us? Well, here, here, here's the backstory. So there's this dude named, uh, you know, Frank Drake, which is fun. It's kind of like, you know, Francis Drake. Um, but basically, um, in 1961, this dude wanted to come up with a way of determining the probability of, of life, intelligent life out in the Milky Way galaxy so that um, they could have an understanding of how and, and how much to invest in was called SETI. Um, I actually donated, I, I don't know whatever happened to it, but I, I agreed to sign up for some time using my computer, personal computer, several years ago. SETI, S-E-T-I, was crunching numbers using people's personal computers at home uh, when they weren't, I don't even remember exactly the technology of it, but when they weren't... Um, using it. When they weren't using it, because the problem is kind of like Bitcoin, there's just a lot of space out there. And even if there are... 
signals coming from outer space, it's, it's like finding a needle in a haystack. So where do you look? How do you look? Is it even worth looking? And so what I'm doing with the kids is using the Drake equation and having them research the different variables within the equation to determine whether or not it would be worth um, putting together like a, an artificial gravity colony in space and if so, would you be expecting to find anybody or are you expecting to find nobody? Are you expecting to find habitable planets or are you expecting to have to just kind of drift through space and avoid, you know, beasts? No, you know, or, or like no, more importantly, you know, running into stuff. Um, but in any case, it's a, it's a fun project. I recommend it. It's kind of a fun thing to consider. But as I was looking at it, I said, it's not just something fun for the kids. It's something interesting for me because it, it was inspiring it was terrifying. It produced a certain level of dread. It produced a certain level of um, loneliness. No, I'll just talk about the loneliness first at an emotional level. Mm. What the Drake equation shows, no matter how optimistic you are or pessimistic about the Drake equation, there aren't that many nearby uh, intelligent civilizations statistically. Mm. You know, it, it, no matter how optimistic you are, it feels really lonely because even if there are other planets out there with intelligent life, it's a long drive. It's such a long road, no matter how fast you're going, even if you're going the speed of light, that we couldn't get there in our lifetimes. And it may be, depending on your calculations, that it's so far that we wouldn't even be able to uh, send like a multi-generation you know, um, expedition out. To, to reach out, um, which is kind of interesting in its own way. Um, but anyway, uh, maybe sometime we'll come back to why the universe seems so lonely and cold. On the other hand, it makes it really beautiful to think that even if this world is fragile, wow, uh, isn't that making it more of a treasure? I mean, isn't it unique? Yeah. The fact is, and it's I, unique. I will also say there's, a, you know, there's also that piece special. of... It, you know, it could be pretty darn scary if, uh, you know, if there are other life forms out there, you know, are they benevolent? Yes. <laughs> are they malicious? <laughs> like, well, you know, what would that be like? So there's that other piece. And then, you know, it, you know, would they be more intelligent, less intelligent? And what different challenges that that also brings? Well, that's how we started it out. But ultimately, as we started with the kids looking at the Drake equation, we shift from a fear that there might be aliens that are dangerous to us mm-hmm. to a fear that like... No, you, nothing else. There's out nothing there. out there. Yeah. And I asked the kids, I mean, what, what is, what is more upsetting to you? The idea that there's this universe that's just vast and it's empty or there's a, u- a universe that's vast and it's filled with monsters. And almost every one of the kids said the empty universe is more terrifying because it's just really uncanny. I mean, just go with this. Most of my kids do not have any religious background. And if they have a religious background, it's, you know, um, like kind of traditions of, let's say, Judaism or something else. You know, maybe they've maybe got a Catholic grandma, but they're not like they're not like the kids I used to have, you know, at the at the Concordia, uh, in terms of their church background. Um, but what's interesting is whether you believe in theism, believe in a God that created the universe or not. Um, if there's a God that created the universe, what was the point of making all of this? landscape or like all this space without putting anybody in it Mm -hmm. or um 
how the heck did we get here? Yeah. <laughs> like it, it just, it, it, to me, it's a very spiritual and interesting philosophical question. The mm-hmm. Drake equation, uh, the questions that the Drake equation arises. We've been talking for a while. Let me get to, you know, the equation itself again. So in, um, so in 1961, um, Drake is, is kind of coming up with this way of determining, you know, is this something that we should be doing? Uh, how should we uh, estimate the probability of contacting uh, alien life, but specifically contacting alien life through um, radio technology, radio telescopes, or transmitting a signal, right? So that's kind of what's at what's at stake here, because you start to quickly realize that getting somewhere, at least in the in the short term, is not going to happen. Nice. We can't travel the speed of light, not with our current and we technology. need to travel faster than the speed of light to really do like the sci-fi space exploration. All right, um, and so they get together uh, all this all this stuff. And um, here's basically what the equation is. N equals, you can go to uh, protectyournoggin.org to, to get the actual number here. N equals R with a subscript, a subscript uh, star. So um, like a little asterisk subscript times FP, which is the, f- the fraction of P, times NE times FL times FI times FC times L. Doesn't mean anything. When you first see it, that seems like, ooh, that's like, that's esoteric, that's mystical. It's not. N, that's the number, that's the that's what you're trying to solve. Mm-hmm. You're trying to figure out what N is. N is the number of civilizations in the Milky Way galaxy that are able uh, to potentially communicate with us, right? Okay. Um, and so uh, th- that means there might be all sorts of civilizations out there in the universe, but we're just talking about one galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy, okay? R starred is the average rate of the formation of stars in our galaxy. So as we look at the galaxy, how, how, uh, how many of these are being born in a year over time? FP is the fraction of those stars that have planets, um, and I'll come back to all these each in a, in a row. Um, so you take the number of stars that are going to be out there, then you multiply that by the fraction of those stars that have planets. Uh, and we could do this by the way of, uh, you know, in terms of a, like a, a fraction, like one third, or we can do it in terms of a decimal. And so, you know, usually let's think of it in terms of probability, zero being no chance, one being certainty, somewhere along the line, we're going to have a, a number with a decimal point. Then there's NE. So you multiply all this by NE, the average number of planets that can potentially support life per star that has planets. In other words, um, you got to figure out how many planets there are out there. Mm-hmm. Then you got to figure out of those planets, on average, in a solar system, any given solar system, how many of those planets could support life. Then you multiply this by FL. That is the fraction of planets that uh, could support life. Um, that actually develop life at some point. So the idea is you could have a planet that has water and you know nutrients and everything that you would need for life to evolve, but how many of those planets support life? How much how many of those actually do evolve life? Then you've got FI, that's the fraction of planets that uh, with life that actually go on to develop intelligent life, which is what they call civilizations. In other words, you could have a planet that doesn't support life. Then you can have a planet that supports life, but does not go on to be intelligent, 
right? Um, and then the next one, FC, is the fraction of civilizations that develop a technology that, re that releases detectable signs that they are there into space. That, that variable is really important for asking whether or not nations should get together and invest in radio telescopes to go looking. That's right. what, the, you know, you know, these big, you know, the, the, yeah. the telescopes, they're looking for the, the, the radio signals. And every once in a while, you'll be looking at the news and they'll say, Ooh, we, we picked up this weird pattern. What we're looking for is, is intelligent patterns. And we, as a, as a earth civilization, we have sent patterns into space intentionally. We've actually targeted these and shot them towards um, places that we think might might have life, mm. kind of as a, as a fun experiment. Um, and then finally, this then takes us to L, the length of time for which such civilizations release detectable signals into space. Now, I don't expect anybody to catch that off the top, but I want to take each of these in the next moments that we have together and maybe it'll take us a while, but I, but I want to go through each of these and talk about what each of these mean in terms of just the science. We'll start with that. But then I especially want to hear your thoughts on what does this do for people when we're thinking about spirituality uh, and religion mm -hmm. and cosmic, what I want to call cosmic dread. Okay. Just beholding, just looking up in the night sky, not feeling sublime feelings of joy and, and, and mystery, but rather... Ah, what is going on, you know? So um, what I want to kind of compare is um, uh, something that is really well done. If you want to kind of check this out, you can go to informationisbeautiful.net, and they have a piece here. Ah, it's just a great website. I don't know much about it, but they have a nice visual way of calculating the Drake equation so that if you want to toy with it, you could, uh, you could toggle the numbers up and down depending on how you think about them. Gotcha. I'm going to I'm going to go with um, first what Drake said and then I'll say what is the optimistic view today. And why would I go with the optimistic view? Because ultimately um, let me just I'll I'll give you the you know kind of the the skeptical answer. Um, the skeptical answer is as you kind of go through uh, each of these uh, the skeptical answer is that the chances of being able to communicate with somebody in this galaxy, if you work these numbers, is 0 0.000062. This is a very low, low probability. Is, yeah. It's basically not worth doing. It's, 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 it's like there might be something out there, but if they don't reach out and contact us, there's no reason we should be looking because it's going to take us a long time and it maybe will take us forever to try to figure this out, right? Uh, so if you're going to be skeptical, this is not skeptical from a religious dogma, mm -hmm. you know, which does affect things as well. But this is a number that I think is also possible, right? The, the, the numbers, uh, that skeptical number, by the way, uh, includes some numbers that I think might be optimistic in in, in their own regard. Mm. For instance, um, there's a number that I didn't mention, which is a variable that's added on later. This is NR. It's the number of times a civilization could redevelop. So if we blow ourselves up, if we pollute ourselves to death, could we have a remnant of humanity that reforms and mm. does it better a second 
and then maybe they blow themselves up and then a third time. All right. But if you assume that when you get to the level of technology we have now where we can consume ourselves to death and blow ourselves up and pollute the earth so that it's past the point of no return in terms of the fisheries and, and, and other life, then you kind of are ending up with um, cockroaches maybe and mm-hmm. then maybe cockroaches develop into intelligent life. It's, it's hard mm-hmm. to say. My point being... To me, the idea that a planet could have a civilization develop like, and then blow itself up multiple times is probably unlikely. I think it's, enti- it's entirely likely that you get, the, you get the Mongols and you get the Romans and you get the Persians and we start and stop those kind of civilizations, mm-hmm. Alexander the Great. But starting and stopping what we are doing now seems to be more um, like teetering on apocalypse. Interesting. You know? Always love to hope, baby, but that's that. All right. So I'm not going to talk about the skeptical views. I want to start with the, the, the Drake value, and then I'm going to go to the optimistic value. And I'm going to just walk through it one by one, and I think we're going to have some fun. Are you ready, girl? I am ready. So the first variable is the rate of star creation in our galaxy. And for this, I'm kind of inclined to just kind of go with the, the reigning science Largely because I don't understand it, but I think it's a little bit easier for people to estimate that than some of these other variables. When they first got together for this, um, they they came up with the idea that uh, that the number was ten. So the original Drake uh, equation value was ten new stars per year, and the optimistic view today is seven. Right? Um, let's go with seven. We can toggle this up and down. It, it's not the most important one, but it basically is going to say, how many stars are we starting with? How many stars are we dealing with? And the universe is expanding, um, and, uh, and there's ways of calculating these things. And, and this is just in our universe. This is in our galaxy. This our is galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy, yeah. And then you multiply this by the percentage of stars with planets, okay? Now, this is interesting because... This number actually went up. Um, originally, the Drake value was half of them. So if you look at a star, how many of those stars have planets? Okay. It's kind of a guess, right? But eventually now, um, they're putting it at almost all of them, huh. uh, or it, you know, maybe close to 100% or 99.9%. That's just kind of an interesting thing that astronomers are finding. And the way that they're finding it is through these advanced telescopes. So um, we find these planets... Um, and we look at the sunlight, uh, sun-like stars, but you don't always see them, but there are ways to detect if a planet's passing in front of something, or you can calculate the wobble of planets to understand what they're nearby and all this, you know? So, so, you know, I don't understand all of the beauties of, you know, what, uh, what, like what John Kenny used to do at, at Concordia mm-hmm. with helping the kids understand uh, what you're doing with an observatory and how you're actually able to learn something about the, the mass or um, the proximity of certain astral bodies to other things. But in any case, they're starting to say that there's a lot more planets than we expected. We know how many stars there are, basically, right? So right. then we're going to see how many of those stars have planets. And it turns out that there's more. So that raises the chances. Now, of course, from the perspective of the educator, I am trying to help these kids understand that math isn't just about <laughs> one plus two equals yeah, three. Yeah, it's like or... it's like we can use math to answer deeper questions. You know. Right. Um, anyway, so but let's stick with that. I'm going to say ninety percent, seventy percent, just fine. 
Okay, so it's going to help us with our number. Then the next variable, NE, is the average number of habitable planets per solar system. So you've got planets, but if you have, like our, we've got nine planets, right. or eight because they fired Pluto <laughs> for being too small. And um, this made the kids sad. I didn't know that they didn't get let in on this, that the Pluto was oh. you know, excluded. But anyway, um, you know, how many of these stars are capable uh, in a solar system of, of being habitable? And the optimistic number is 0.3. Now, that means that 30% of stars that have solar systems have habitable planets on those solar systems. Of some sort of life form. Well, don't worry about if they're life forms or not. But could we, if we were to uh, travel there, is it, is it possible that they could support life? So what do you think about that number? So it's 0.3, which means like, I mean, that sounds like three and 10. I would say that sounds relatively, you know, likely then. So seven. On, on its yeah. own. I mean, considering. I hope so. You know. Um, I, I hope so. I mean, you th- so, you, yeah, I mean, if you think about this, like, if, <laughs> okay, if you were trying to get pregnant out of 10 times you tried and three of those times were mm-hmm. successful, like, that's pretty darn good. Mm-hmm. Well, it's good. But the question is, is it real? So, in other words, it's kind of, we would have to know, you know, how precise do the conditions have to be? And this takes us to something that, that theists people who believe in God have spent a lot of time with, including my old professor, Alistair McGrath, when he dealt with uh, something called natural theology at Oxford University and, and, and other areas where he's worked. And the idea is related to this thing called the anthropic principle. Um, basically, the anthropic principle is this idea um, that, the, that the world, especially as we see it in our world, um, the earth is fine-tuned for life. If it was a little bigger, oh, we'd yeah. flatten out as planets. If it well, was a little too, smaller, we'd float off into the space. Too close to the sun, we would too burn hot. up. We would, you know, too far away, we'd be too cold. Yeah. And if you start to add, as, as McGrath does, if you add all of the other factors in, just a little bit of a change to the atmosphere uh, changes. Just a little bit less water. You know, all these different things are going to affect, yeah. you know, whether or not you can have life. So... From that perspective, it seems to me that that could be a little bit high. I'd put that as a little bit high. It's an optimistic number. But the original Drake value was two. So they originally are assuming um, that maybe if you look out on, on the horizon, you know, you look out into the sky, each of those stars is, uh, each of those stars is probably, uh, or they said 50% of the stars are going to have planets. But if they have planets the chances are that two of the planets, and maybe including moons, will be livable. I think one of the reasons that people do have a higher uh, sense um, that there's possibility there relates to moons around planets like Jupiter, mm. right? So I don't know what the current research is on it, but, you know, to me, my hunch would be if we are going to run into somebody, it's not going to be from deep space. It's not going to be light years away. It's going to be somebody cruising over from... Uh, uh, a large moon of, say, Jupiter. And you're, well, now you're saying because that's just <clears throat> the reality of them being able to get to us. They couldn't come from much further or. Yeah, right, right. If you're in the solar system, you could eventually have a, a long journey and, and come visit. If you're in another solar system or if you're a few solar systems away, it's not, you're not going to be able to do it in your lifetime. 
Yeah. The nice thing about space, if you throw a football in space, that football's going to go at the same speed. It's going to keep going unless it bumps into something. So if you can get up to a good speed, you don't need a lot of fuel, but you got to get fast. And we can't get to speed of light, and you need to get to the speed of light to even come close to some of these. Anyway, but it's if so if it's not two, it's maybe 0.3. I'll stick with that. I'll stick with it in terms of the fact that the rest of this is going to change it. So in other words, it's possible that maybe life could exist on Mars even now. That would make, and this is the key, this is why Mars matters. Um, if life doesn't exist on Mars, but we could seed life there, if we could put some mushroom spores and some, and some seeds, something, you know, yeah, and, there's, and there's the, uh, maybe lichen, I don't know, and there's, there's some water on the planet, then maybe it could, it could really start to take off and then it, it evolve in its own way. So that would be, that's the kind of question there. But this is why this is interesting. And again, this was, this was all started before we made it to the moon. So if you think about it, one of the reasons why I, as a kid, got less excited about NASA, and I think a lot of other people got less excited, is as fun as it was for us to feel great about putting people onto the moon, Mm-hmm. We didn't find that much that was mm-hmm. exciting, and we've sent probes to Mars, and we haven't found worms, right? Or a little weird, like all we would have to find is little alien cockroaches to be just completely intrigued. I mean, wouldn't that be amazing? Right, right. But this is <laughs> why. This, but this is why it matters. When you're dealing with probabilities, you've got to come to the the question with some kind of empirical basis, right? So if we are only operating with earth, then our sample size is really small. We're just dealing with us. So when you deal with this idea of the anthropic principle that the world has to be a certain way, well, then um, you kind of are, are biased by the fact that it happens to be that this is the way the world is. Right. Uh, can I say Is something? that because it's common or is it because we just happen to be the only ones paying attention to anything in the universe? Yeah. You never know. <laughs> I was going to say if there was this alien cockroach that you mentioned on Mars, like, you yes. know, just being silly but um is it as smart as a blue death fainting beetle my favorite little bug pet <laughs> the kids love but what i was thinking is is if for some reason um it was hardy enough to uh endure the conditions at mars but then also uh live on earth i yeah, think we'd be doomed. we would be doomed <laughs> this would They'd become be like super the, yeah super, super bugs super bugs yeah that could just like take over anyway i'm yep. just sorry i was just no that's of... really good now this this <laughs> takes us to something that i find really interesting with the exception of some people like you know like i mentioned c.s lewis who thought you know c.s lewis has the space trilogy and basically his argument is to see to say um, one of the reasons we might not be contacted by alien life is because maybe they're avoiding us because we we are tainted by wickedness. Mm. Like we're going to mm. bring our imperialism yeah. and our capitalism and what Christians call sin. I, I would think that there could be some strong arguments for that. Yeah. And I think Lewis, one of his things is that like in a way we're kind of like we're a fallen species. And so we're if like there's a virus. A, yeah. If there's a God that created us, this God allowed us to fall. This is kind of C.S. Lewis's interpretation. This God allowed us to fall into sin and wickedness, but is quarantining us from the rest of the universe. Hmm. There's a secular version that says the rest of the universe knows we're crazy. They detected that we were letting off, uh, you know, Oppenheimer's deadly toy, the uh, nuclear uh, uh, bomb. And when we started doing this, then we woke them up. 
this is part of the narrative of ufologists, Mm. that it does seem to be the case that a lot of the contact comes when we have exponentially better technology uh, around the time of World War II. And you get these things called the Foo Fighters that often military planes going off to do war are intercepted or at least tailed by some kind of craft that they can't understand. But the craft doesn't tend to shoot anybody down. Mm -hmm. It seems kind of benevolent. It Mm -hmm. seems like they're researching us, studying us. Maybe they're not always like kind. If you take any of the, you know, alien, um, uh, the encounter stories, seriously, it would be that um, there's something floating around that's weird. These Mm -hmm. craft are very highly capable, but they don't seem to be aggressive. Right. Right. They could be surveillance. Maybe they're not going to try to tip their hand yet, but it, it is interesting. And in many ways, this is the first kind of spiritual reflection that I have or, or just existential reflection. I don't, I wish I had more hope. I don't have a ton of hope for humanity. Not because I think that everything is, is irreparable. I believe that we can usually fix things if we put our minds to them. Mm-hmm. Not always, but we can, we can fix some things. We don't have the will. We don't have the will to overcome our racism. We don't have the will to overcome poverty. It doesn't seem like it. And it seems like that often people get too comfortable um, in their own, I I guess, in their own um, sort of existence as long as they're not at the complete bottom. Yeah, um, and they're that, and they're willing to that, just eat up uh, all the resources and let the right. next generation starve. Right, and so as long as that's the case, it's weird to me. Yeah, I mean, I even see that there's a lot of liberal people that that will speak a different game, but ultimately they're not willing to make the sacrifices that are really necessary to avert disaster. Well, and the other interesting thing I think is, um, it's interesting when people sort of have a. Um, kind of get fend for yourself attitude um even with their own children so yeah. it's like they i mean they can't even like go past you know their own selves even to their yeah. their family or whatever then let alone think of you know society at large right yeah um, yeah, yeah if you're selfish and you don't and you neglect your own kids why do you care about your grandkids or other people's grandkids yeah this is it's just this horrific it, selfishness it's and, and i and yeah and i I think it's just that um, uh, people often have gotten too comfortable in whatever conveniences they're able to enjoy mm-hmm. that it's, um, you know, it's too much for them to think of sacrificing that for the sake of, you know, I guess the, the planet or future generations mm-hmm. instead, because it would make their own lives harder. Yeah. That said, I kind of hope that there are intelligent beings that are visiting us from one of Jupiter's moons that eventually will intervene and say, okay, you've had enough time to, to screw this up on your own. Um, for the sake of uh, science, we're going to maintain your habitat. You know, like we're wolves or something at Yellowstone. They're kind of managing us and curating us like a wild animal park. It's just too, we're too interesting to allow ourselves or to, to allow uh, our doom. That would be fun. I hope that's true. It is interesting because then that's just also another, I mean, yes, another sort of uh, power coming in and to your anarchiness, you know, I I guess it's interesting because it also seems to kind of go against in some ways what uh, with the Tao Te Ching, you know, as I've been spending a lot more time back into translating that in that like 
um, because it it involves a certain level of interference. Well, this is, this is interesting. So they're not interfering. So maybe they are, uh, maybe they're loving the Tao Te Ching. So they're saying like, we care, we're compassionate, but they're, they're not going to interfere. Um, you said power. What if they are anarchists and they're saying, man, these kids, they're just taking too long to figure out how to get past late stage capitalism and, and delve into the happiness of smurfdom. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I mean, it's possible that that's what they're waiting for. My point being though, but when you said, I said power, what do you mean? Well, oh, you said like this other power, right? Like that's how we tend to think of it mm. because of who we are. Yeah. When, when Europeans came to the new world, Columbus was the biggest a-hole and he comes in, he goes, Oh, like, let's just pack a lot of these people into yeah. boats and like enslave them. But what I, I guess what I meant though, is the interference piece. Like if you're, if they're interfering at all, yes. Unless we ask for it, unless we ask for help to understand how to be okay. Does it make sense? Yeah. We need rescue. Yeah. I need, a, I need some bodhisattva type civilization that says, well, we could ignore you, but you seem to need our help. Let me, let us teach you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that would be different. I would take wisdom. That would be you different. Know? Yeah. Regardless, that's kind of something in the back of my mind that I think I would hope for. Yeah. Because I, I don't have a lot of hope for <laughs> Any anything else? I don't have a lot of post millennial hope for uh, followers of Jesus. Well, it certainly would be nice if there was something or somebody that did have answers for us yeah. that could help us um, put into action. Uh-huh. Right, that would help. Say because it is, and I think I think largely, I mean everybody is kind of looking around and saying. Who has answers? Nobody knows Who's what's going on. In charge. That's why they're letting the. That's why they're letting the MAGA f- 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 fiasco go on because, like, it's not like anybody really thinks. I mean, I think it's partly people in the Republican Party aren't even necessarily sure that the that the um, Chicago school, the the libertarian um, capitalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, anarcho-capitalism or something, a moderate version of that. I'm not sure they even think it works. And so they, 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 I think have lost faith. I think conservatives have lost faith in an old school kind of sane conservatism, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, but which I mean, like I'm a Taoist anarchist kind of person. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't hate uh, traditionalist Confucian types, which is to say Mm -hmm. like, the Taoist is like, let's play around, let's break with convention, let's be natural and free. Whereas the Confucians are saying, hey, like, let's draw from the wisdom of our ancestors, and if we kind of keep following there's, that path, we'll survive. And there's far more yet yeah, discipline, order, yeah, some of that. The MAGA crew, they're willing to blow the whole thing up. They're draped in flags and attacking the the Capitol building. They're talking about the Constitution, and then they're pissing on the Constitution. Like yeah. I don't, I'm not a statist, so I don't necessarily have those same those same concerns. But it's it's um, not very great. But this is a theological question. I said earlier that I don't buy the post millennial Jesus thing, which is sad for me because there have been times when I did. What do I mean by this? There's this thing called premillennial eschatology for Christians, which is, yeah, the world's going to hell in a handbasket, but at some point the rapture is going to happen and then God's just going to fix it. Yeah. Right. I'm not looking, I'm not looking at that with a high degree of probability. 
I just don't think that's how this is going to work out. This and is not my intuition. for them, in a certain sense, um, the pre- signs that the world is falling apart is actually, right. in, in a certain yeah. sense, positive because it just means that the hour is drawing closer yes. before God will step in. There is very little incentive for premillennial Christians to do anything about the environment or Iran or Russia for all. I mean, Russia's Gog and Magog, I don't know, China. I mean, maybe the whole thing comes true exactly like that. My point is, there's this other type of Christianity that was oh much more optimistic. Post-millennial Christianity said, we're going to inaugurate the kingdom of God on earth. That's what I fight for um, in the way of Jesus. That's what I think is important for people, whether you're a theist or an atheist, to consider the way of Jesus as, emancip- as emancipatory, as creating another world than the one that we have. It's it's challenging the status quo, and I think it can be done in its little enclaves of anarchy. And the alternative... But I'm not looking at the world and seeing much of a hope right, right now. Right, right. And the alternative would be that, what, then otherwise it's just everything becomes right in the afterlife, and so that this world, I guess, is just to learn about how everything will be made right in the afterlife? Yeah, well, that's, yeah... Um, that's its whole theological issue. But what, it, what but so that being the case, you either can fix it or you can't. You can, you can do what the Jewish people talk about as tikkun olam, the healing and the repair of the world. That's what I want. I am losing faith in that. I have a high degree of faith in young people thinking a different way. Yeah. That's my hope because a lot of the, the hatred and the nonsense that I'm hearing comes from people that are older. Correct. I just don't know what's going on with the kids of these people. You know, but I do know that there's a lot of a lot of hope amongst their attitudes. But is it going to be too late? Are we going to blow ourselves up before that? Because people are saying, oh, this is fine, this Putin guy, you know. I mean, just crazy. All right. So we are definitely sidetracked. Yeah. But this is... But this is okay because that's what, to me, the meditation on the Drake equation is going to do. But let's keep moving. So average number of habitable planets, we'll keep it at 0.3 for now. It is the first one that is worth kind of debating. And I think for Christians that are literalistic Bible people that think that the only possibility of life is if God creates it, that number still is a reasonably um, intelligible number. That is, if God could create instantly, if God creates instantly beings on a planet, how many planets are possible? That's fine. So that's still a number. But this next question, FL, this is the question that becomes very complicated uh, for uh, conservative fundamentalist Christians. I remember there was somebody I love and respect. We've had lunch with him. I like him a lot, but he said online something that I thought was interesting. And that is if aliens showed up and, and like parked on the white house lawn, he would stop being a Christian. I thought that's strange. Yeah. And it was because it didn't fit his worldview. It wasn't in the Bible. I thought that's really interesting that not only do some Christians and there's a lot of them, not only do some Christians think that the Bible is literally true from a scientific standpoint in terms of the age of the earth uh, and when things were created and how, how they were literally created, right? Like I'd say like God creating out of the dust of the ground sounds a lot like evolution to me, but you know, they're taking it as very direct and, and, and literal. If that's the case, then um, the idea that somebody came from another planet would blow up their entire faith. I mean, that's interesting to me, but, but I know many people like that. Yeah, the Bible that, didn't I mean, tell I, me about it, so then, 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 then what? Yeah, that is fascinating to me, um, as well as, yeah, I mean, it's that idea that 
at the time that um, that the Bible was written, that whatever whatever was possibly able in our human intelligence to be able to be understood has to incorporate every single aspect of God that would be possibly yeah. real. Or just nature. It's very odd that, yeah. that, like, would you expect God to come talk to Bronze Age people and say, hey, check, 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 check it. And that they would Quantum be Quantum mechanics, to okay, write it entanglement down theory, yeah. plus string theory, plus, no. Relativity, da, da, da. no, you're not, like, it's not even something that I can understand, so how's Bronze Age people uh, gonna, gonna manage that? Yeah, and then have, what, the vocabulary to be right. able to even, yeah, anyway, it's... So if you anyway, so if you recognize a combinated language, that's fine. But here's the here's the problem: what percentage of habitable planets develop life? Now I just want you to intuit it. Let's take an Earth-like planet that has all of the same soup, all the same building blocks. Intuitively, take a guess. Percentage-wise, what do you think is the percentage of planets that would evolve life if all the conditions were right? Intuitively, yeah, I don't know. That just—I guess that just means like a guess. Uh huh. <laughs> Maybe one in three. Yeah, that's like thirty percent. That your number is higher than the optimistic number today, which I think is interesting. Yeah, because that kind of plays into the arg- the theistic arguers who say that it is too hard to imagine that that life would evolve on this planet. Mm-hmm. That's what they're saying. Mm-hmm. So in other words, this whole game is over. The Drake equation is done if you put that number at zero. If you think without a special creator, God, that the chance of, 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 of life developing on a habitable planet is zero, then you take any number. That wouldn't matter. Yeah. Times zero is? Zero. Zero. Yeah. Okay. That's the game. Now, the interesting thing is, all right, we've ghosted church. I'm not buying the fundamentalist science, you know, never really have, but like it's been a long time since I even came close to, to buy in the fundamentalist science. But there is something interesting. And that is, if you look around with a telescope, it does seem that, uh, and we'll get to this with the, what we call the Fermi paradox at some other point, not today. But, um, it, but you think about this and you'd say, all right, um, what are the chances that life develops? I'd put it at pretty high. I would think that there's something really interesting about life that when it has a chance, it's going to develop. You know, if the mold can grow, the mold grows. Mm-hmm. You know, this mm-hmm. is my experience. Sometimes, sometimes we try to grow stuff. Yeah, it just won't grow. <laughs> it's like, what? No. But see, you're talking yeah. about you need lots of time yeah. and lots of different yeah, opportunities. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, but here's the deal. So that, so it seems to me that's high. That, that the number should be high, higher than 10%. But do you know why I think they put it at 10%? Uh, that this is the, the, the standard one or the, the optimistic one now. Um, and that it's much lower than Drake because I forgot to mention Drake's original number um, was 100%. So Drake thought if there's a planet like Earth, 100% of the time it will develop life. That's my intuition at first. Mm-hmm. And that's what people started with. I think I forgot to mention that Drake thought that the average number of habitable planets per solar system was two. I might have said that, yeah. and Yeah, so I did say that. So he thought it was two per solar system, and now they're saying not every solar system is going to have a habitable planet. It'll be about one-third of solar systems. Uh, actually, less, 30% of solar systems, okay? Mm-hmm. And we'll stick with that. But anyway, Drake, Drake thought originally that 100% of habitable planets are going to have life. That went That got cut way down to 10%. And do you know why? why? Because as we've done research 
into this planet and into Mars and other things, we're finding that even with certain conditions right, we're not running into plankton microorganisms. We're just not running into gotcha. stuff. Gotcha. There's no other All we would have to do is find a non-related, and that means not related to our DNA, um, life form, even a very primitive life form in the ice of Mars. Maybe we will, and that number goes up. If, in fact, Mars missions in our lifetime determine that there are fossils that have died out, or they determine that life uh, exists but is at a very uh, kind of basic stage, this FL, this variable is going to shoot way up. Gotcha. But we, but we don't have that. And then there's something else. There was a, a, there was a discovery at Mono Lake that everybody was getting excited about. Mono Lake, they thought, had um, life forms that were not carbon-based. So all the life forms that we know on this planet are carbon-based. All of life is related with the same, like, operating system. Mm. It's kind of like, you know, think about you got Mac, you got Windows. <laughs> Everything on this planet is basically working with Mac. We might have different configurations, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, you might be an older form of the iPhone and there's a newer form. But they're all kind of working with the same kind of operating operating system. In fact, it's it's even weirder. Um we might get more complex machines, but we're still dealing with the exact operating system and we're not updating the operating system. Gotcha. Yeah, not as much. So, um, and of course, friends, if I'm missing the science right in, we'll, we'll fix it. But the, the deal is that the, the general principles remain. So you go to, to Mono Lake and they thought, this is huge because if you could have life in a lake that's living in ammonia instead of oxygen and what it is, mm -hmm. what would that tell us? Yeah, that a different operating system is possible, right? Yeah, and that it's likely, mm -hmm. in a sense, right? Like, there's a couple opportuni opportunities, but we're all related. I mean, this is the weird thing. I know people don't like to, like, from the conservative world, think about this, but the idea that we're related to mushrooms and the cat and to squirrels and to deer and to monkeys, we're all related, that to me is beautiful. That's mystical. Mm -hmm. I, I meditate on that. Yeah. I, I meditate on our interconnectedness and I find it to be joyful. And I see, you know, I mean, I, I still can't get over that every morning while I'm trying to get my math stuff ready, my, <laughs> my, my Ursula Le Guin talk ready. Uh, and I don't talk, we like discuss, you know, but we're getting some things ready. And these kids flow up to my classroom and they all want to visit their buddies, the, the, Beatles. Be the Beatles, and they just play with them all day, and they just love them. And these Beatles are, like, so kind of lovable. They're not, like, weird and, like, f like freaky. They're just, like, <laughs> it's kind of like little robots that crawl around on them. Um, I tell you. But we're, great, great, we're related. That's a great, uh, maybe perhaps... Uh, Present for the holidays coming up or something. Yes, if you, you know, <laughs> low, especially low maintenance. Low maintenance. If you're a parent, you want your kids to not be lonely in their room. Um, anyway, especially if like, a pandemic comes back, you want something, you don't have to walk outside. Hit it. All right. Do not physically hit the bugs. They will get hurt. Now, Aww. amazing that the, that the kids have kept these <laughs> things from getting crushed all this time. Anyway, uh, so let's, but let's look at that and we say, no, it's actually kind of low. It seems like there's a lot of life on this planet, but there's only really... A, a unique origin it yeah. seems and that's that's yeah. weird yeah okay so that number though let's put it at 10 percent. then the next variable is um going to be uh, fi and this is also very much debated this is something that that people are de debating um and it, this is the percentage of uh 
of a chance that life develops intelligence. So let's say every every three solar systems that you fly past in our area has life on it. Um, only one percent is the optimistic view. Only one percent develop intelligent life, okay. like we have. Mm-hmm. Now, why? Because animal species have been on this planet for a long time. Mm-hmm. A long time. And human beings have been around for a long time, but in the the grand span of things, human beings haven't been around right, that for that long. And therefore, they also didn't, we didn't have to exist. There were certain factors that, that needed to be in place for us to exist. And as Father John Misty says, uh, our heads are way too big for our mother's hips. Yeah. It is hard for our species to produce babies that continue to develop brains after they pass through the birth canal. They got the little soft patch on the head. They can't walk. They can't feed themselves. They can't remember anything. Right. Meanwhile, puppies can remember what their their early days were like. Yeah. They pop out. That's why I think Bimby doesn't like tools because whoever it was that got her at first, you know, um, they clipped off her tail. Well, we think, well, we do circumcisions and they forget about it. But well, no, this also, dog um, doesn't forget about it. Yeah, and I also know that I think that um, might have used a, a broom to sort of keep back some of the puppies so they can, like, isolate out, you know, yeah, one maybe, or two or whatever. But whatever, they remember things. it. Right. So I just think that the, the stick, you know, she doesn't like yeah. it. I don't think it was, like, meant to hurt them. But I think no. it was just also, it's how she got separated from her mother. But whatever separated us when we were kids, we don't remember it. Yeah. You know, so anyway, the point is, it's entirely possible that to get to the level of intelligence that we have, only one in a hundred living planets would, would get there. So, for instance, I was saying, you know, if we destroyed ourselves and we had cockroaches, mm-hmm. we might be able to have life evolve from cockroaches to an intelligent species. But what are the chances? Scientists are putting it optimistically at one, but it could be. Kind 1%. of lower. Yeah. 1%. 1%. So when you start adding all these percentages up, yeah. it's getting harder and harder. That's how the number of, of planets with life are going to be lower. Then there's FC. This is now where it matters in terms of being able to go looking for people. Let's say that there's, a, that there's okay, there's these planets that have life on them. How many of those planets have... Um, uh, have life that can communicate with radio. Mm. Well, we've existed for a long time as human beings, but just a little while ago, people were, were rocking, uh, you know, like letters on horseback, mm-hmm. you know, the, um, what was it called? The uh, Pony Express. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Within a lifetime of some people, you go from the Pony Express or, you know, like traveling, just doing mail and, and horse-drawn carriages to being able to... Um, to blow up a city in the forties. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, like and, it's all, and it's also interesting that, so we chose to communicate through like radio waves, but like, right. what if there was a different method? Could be a different method. You know, maybe it just never occurred that, to people that to they do that. Developed or something. And this, we have some evidence for, because we look at civilizations. There have been very advanced civilizations, the Persians, the Chinese, Chinese last a long, long time. You get the Ethiopians, you've got the Romans, you got Alexander the Great, all these civilizations, heck, the British Empire, traveling around the world you can get better and better technology but do you start to even imagine communicating through the magic of the sky that's that's hard to say and so 
a lot of people, this is also a controversial one, but they're putting this at 1% also. So 1% of 1%, now we're starting to say, if we, we say, these are different questions. How much life is out there? How many civilizations are out there? Mm-hmm. But then who can actually talk to us? Now it's getting to be smaller and smaller of a number. Right. Good news. The next number is bigger. Okay. Okay. Um, that is um, L. Okay. But by the way, FC uh, is, the, is the variable, the chance that life can communicate across space. Um, Drake put it at um, 1%. And we keep it at 1%. So it's um, people recognize that it's not entirely guaranteed that a civilization will ever think that it's worth doing. Right. Maybe they're more natural. I mean, if the world was run by Taoist anarchists, would there be a real reason? Not really. This is, the, I, I, this is the odd part. Technology, this is something that I'm discussing with the kids with Ursula Le Guin uh, and the dispossessed. And that is... Um, there is a way in which capitalism mo- does motivate uh, science and exploration. There's an incentive to do it. Right. Right. Um, but there's also the downside. You're not being natural. You're not living in accordance with nature. You're trying to control nature. And what does the Tao Te Ching say about trying to control the world? <laughs> That's exactly how you uh, lose it. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it, it first of all, can't be done. It's going to go back to whatever it's going to be. But then you're going to, yeah. you know, bump, bump up against reality and smash yourself. So anyway... The, the, that's that. But the, the, um, the original Drake value for the last one, L was 10,000 and 10,000 is the number of years, the, the length of time a civilization would send signals into space. So if one in a hundred intelligent civilizations do use radio signals, Mm -hmm. how long will they be doing it for? Because if they only do it for a short period of time, we won't be able to detect it. Gotcha. Because what we're trying to figure out with this equation is, is it worth looking around? Right, right. Now, they, made a, they might have died uh, some time ago, but if, these, if the radio waves are still kind of reaching us, then at least we'll know that somebody was there, and that'll tell us something. Right. That's why, like, SETI, the search for extraterrestrial uh, uh, t- intelligence, is an interesting question, because all we need to do is find one kind of close by, and we'll say, oh, there's probably more. Does that make sense? Right. If we find one alien planet, there might be others, right? Right, right, right. If we're the only ones, then that's a weird that we're the only ones. Well, anyway, so Drake said there's 10,000, there's probably 10,000 years that it would last. The, today's optimistic number is 10 million years. <laughs> and these numbers intuitively can be assessed by anybody. What do you think about civilization lasting, um, on, on average, 10 million years? <laughs> Um, well, I guess, I mean, it would, again, it depends on how loving that civilization is, right? Because if it's all just for self gain, it can't possibly, probably, um, I guess it could live that long, um, by, I guess if you die off certain portions, like kind of back to what we were saying before, and then some things survive perhaps. Well, that's where I jumped ahead, which is, that's the NR factor that I'm, I usually don't, I'm not using with the students. Um, the NR is the number of times a, civiliza- a civilization could redevelop. Mm-hmm. So, all right, so you screw it up, you do it again. But I'm saying like, all right, I think that number is zero. That, I just, I think, I think we blow it. Well, I mean, maybe it can redevelop. But it's going to be a lower well, or, number than three. Or maybe it doesn't completely get annihilated. I guess sure. that's what I'm saying. Like, but, because, I mean, to... But go back to the biodome. Yeah. It's not a matter of learning our lesson. 
Right. I mean, unless we can figure out a way to survive complete ecological and, collapse. And I and yeah, and I guess it would just depend too if there are any life forms that yeah. would be hardy enough, like we said, the cockroaches and then from there maybe come back again or something. I'll tell yeah. you the optimism level of the kids. <laughs> no. Um I would say that the kids do not have a lot of confidence that the big people can keep this game flowing for ten million years. I ten million years? Yeah. Civilization that has the technology. How long, how long, how long, just for perspective, how long have we as a civilization existed? Well, 10,000 years as civilization, Mm -hmm. you know, homo sapiens have lasted tens of thousands of years. I mean, much, much longer, right? Maybe it's a million going back. It's a very long time, but that's not what we're worried about. We're worried about this weird problem by the time. Civilization gets smart enough to be able to communicate to other planets. It gets smart enough to blow itself up and smart enough to create industrial uh, waste that's going to destroy us. The people that go for the larger number, and this is an optimistic thing, and I hope it works out, would say that maybe, and this is the only thing we've got going for us, maybe the January 6th insurrectionists, maybe the the flailing about of anti-intellectual fascists that don't believe in science. They don't believe in vaccines. They don't believe in love. They don't Mm -hmm. believe in psychology, right? Mm -hmm. Like maybe that's the death throes of that first phase. And if, and, and what people theorize is if we could, if we could get past this precarious moment that we're living in right now, what the Hindus call the Kali Yuga, maybe, right? Mm-hmm. Like the end times. Mm-hmm. Um, if we can get past this, then maybe we'll be okay. Mm-hmm. If I, we get past this, we'll say, we'll learn our lesson and then we're going to put things in place where it's like Star Trek and then we travel into, into space and we bring our wisdom into the world. Yeah. You were going to say. I, I don't know. I, I'm inclined, at least my personally, to believe... Um, sort of more from the perspective of the Tao Te Ching that somehow nature will find a way to uh, balance out and survive. It doesn't mean that, you know, us as human beings will survive. Uh, Maybe we're a virus that can't possibly isn't sustainable. I don't know. Um, but but that we balance ourselves out somehow. Yeah. That like and that like the disease. This is kind of Malthusian, but the idea is we've talked about the reason we've got all these diseases is because we're factory farming. We're cruel yeah. to animals, and it eventually is going to come back to bite us. Right. So there's some creatures that we already know that have gone extinct. Animals yeah. have gone extinct. Well, there's been a lot of extinctions lately. Yeah. That's part of the thing that's scaring me. That is that is very scary. No, but you're totally right. But it's possible that so we balance then it out. that the. We, you know, whatever the the harm that we're doing can be stopped by our own, um, or at least an extinction enough or close enough um, that we can no longer harm the planet in the way that we are. And then we rebound. And then the planet slowly over lots of time. I've thought this a lot. Like we we think about everything from a kind of Eurocentric standpoint, but like surely there are people going to, that are going to survive. If no matter how bad we screw this up, there surely are going to be some pockets of human beings that can survive in certain places. I would just think. Maybe there's super rich people in Antarctica. Maybe they're just wonderful anarchist type people in New Zealand. Maybe they're indigenous tribes that that just wait the whole thing out. They just miss the whole thing in Brazil. 
Or maybe, yeah, maybe somehow maybe. whatever the whatever chemicals it is that kill people, some people could be resistant to, the, you know, right. those chemicals. This or is whatever. what this is. This is the glories of evolution. It's we are adaptive. Mm-hmm. Species are adaptive. So, so I, you'll have I still, a whole I still, world. I still, yeah. I still hold out some hope. Um, Cockroaches, pigeons, coyotes, and a few Mad Max. You know, post-apocalyptic people. But but it is scary how. Um, how individualistic we are and that we, you know, again, the, the mindset of the, the people doesn't give me a whole lot of faith. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, well, we're feeling kind of down then. And we know, you know, dear listener, we're not trying to be down. There is a reason that we're talking about this with you yeah. because human beings have thought the end of the world was happening before right? over and over. I would have thought it was happening with the Huns, with the Mongols, with I, the Vikings. And I just don't get, I just don't really understand society that allows like, so many people to be crushed underneath it. Yeah. The fact that, Poverty. I mean, the fact that, Hey there friends. We're kind of embarrassed before I let us get back into the, uh, the groove of whatever, like, mopey, <laughs> sad, sad stuff we were talking about. Uh, we just want to insert here that um, that we never told you what we were saying uh, was, our, was our estimate uh, of whether we're alone in the universe, whether uh, there is a chance that we could communicate with somebody out there uh, in especially the Milky Way galaxy. So um, to recap, we're looking again at the, uh, the Drake Equation, which um, you can just go look up online to see all the various parts. Uh, but to summarize where we've been, if we're, if we're thinking about the most optimistic view of uh, what this could be, they put this at the number of new stars born per year at seven. Um, they put the n- uh, number of stars with planets at 90%. They put the average number of habitable planets per solar system at 0.3. So that's uh, not every solar system, again, has a, um, has a habitable planet. And then they put it at 10%, uh, the chance of a habitable planet developing life. 1%, the chance that life develops intelligence. 1% chance that life can communicate across space. And then a 10 million um, average length of time, 10 million average length of time that a civilization will be sending signals out into space. Very high number. And then they add this other thing that's not always included, and that's NR. That's the number of times civilizations could redevelop. So when I go back to it, to make this easy, Stacey and I, we're basically going to have the same number for the first several. Um, but then we're, we're going to look at things from kind of a more Tao perspective. And so because I think that, um, in a way, we should think about kind of life being more possible than not, um, we're going to put it back up more to, um, I think, a higher number for uh, the, the possibility that life's going to develop when it can develop. And that percentage is 60. That seems, that seems reasonable. I think that could even be higher if you're just believing in, in hope. Then the chance, the percentage chance that life develops intelligence, I'm going to say in a certain sense, maybe there's some kind of inner, I mean, this is not sounding very naturalistic at all. Um, Let's make it even more uh, spooky, and we'll put it at a Masonic number. 33. Okay, so 33%. 
Uh, so we're not trying to be totally silly about it, but it just seems intuitively possible that if for some reason these goops produce life, like maybe that's, that's something that happens pretty often uh, given a sufficient amount of time. Uh, then the percentage chance life can communicate across space, we'll keep it at the 1% that everybody else is using. That, I think, could be a little higher. But the thing that's really, really silly for me is that L number. Uh, 10 million years seems really, really difficult. And so me and Stacy both agree that uh, the number should be lower. We're putting it. And 5,000? Therefore, we're at half of what you know, the original Drake value was. So we added, you know, some percentage points to the optimistic values um, based on no, no strong scientific training in this at all. But just... But not much faith that it'll keep going on for too many years. But the problem with all of this, yeah, is that, you know, you have to kind of intuit it. These are all, like, when you're dealing with probabilities, we don't have a lot of, you know, sample for it. Anyway, so then we look at this, and if we go to the 5,000... Uh, if you go with Stacy, who is optimistic with this idea that the Dow kind of brings things back into balance before they get too bad, she's putting the NR value at three. So if you calculate Stacy's view, uh, in the entire Milky Way galaxy, there are either a lot or a little, depending on your attitude. 75. So that's, that's, a, that's a decent number. I just completely erased the idea that you can rebuild the civilization, so I'm just keeping that at uh, one, so you're not going to rebuild the civilization. So my guess is that there are about 37 communicating civilizations in the galaxy. And uh, finally, before we let you get back to whatever mopiness we were doing, um, the original Drake values, uh, he actually surprisingly only had 10 communicating civilizations, and yet they kept working at that stuff. So anyway, there you have it. We'll let you get back to uh, whatever else we were doing. Like, it's so ridiculously expensive to just get some sort of health care so that if you get some sickness or disease or cancer or whatever, that yeah. you can prolong your life. Like, we literally, then we're, we're basically saying money determines whether you get to exist. Right. Or continue yeah. to exist. And this system is it's crushing a, it's a, us. It's a hard system. <laughs> it is. It's a, it's a dis dispiriting system. Yeah. But friends, this is why we're talking about it. This is why we do the dang podcast. If there's any hope for us, we cannot be complacent. We, we cannot be complacent. We need to be bodhisattvas. We and need to be little disciples of Jesus in the sense of coming to bring people news of a different world that's possible. The other, yeah, and the other thing, you know, that I guess, and we've talked about this again, I guess, um, uh, hegemony, but just the idea, though, that there are so many people that are also getting, I mean, first of all, I don't know if you're, I mean, if you're one of the few people that aren't feeling crushed by the system, then I mean, that's awesome. You know, like, I guess, I guess, you know what I'm saying? I'm saying at least <laughs> right. for well, I mean, good that you're not getting crushed, but you system. can, you can sleep a little easier at night or whatever, but there aren't very many people that I am talking to that don't find it difficult to um, get health insurance, that don't find it difficult to pay their bills, that aren't finding that th this inflation isn't making an impact in their lives. Therapy, you that's know? off the table. Organic food, starting to go off the table. So all the things but, that you could say are good. And well, and then the the decline in general of people's mental health because yeah. of all of this. Like there's so much. And I'm not. That's not to be a doomsayer. What I am saying is, is that people are struggling. People are struggling, and they're struggling because, like, 
this system isn't working. Right. And yeah. and they're feeling the that strain that yeah. the you know what and it's like we're you know we're kind of getting back to a system where people need pretty much you know the you know the idea of like living in your own home without like multiple families you know people in their family living together is starting to disappear more and more and more and what like maybe families that could have left money behind for their kids need it to just survive i guess and pay for their own health care at the yeah. end of life and so i don't know and my point is is that um there are so many people <laughs> that are struggling in the current system and um i wish <laughs> I, I i want i want a different way i want i want you know i want it to be better and easier mm-hmm. for everybody um but unless i think our values change as a society yeah uh and, and unless um you know we actually choose to live differently in solidarity with other human beings then with mutual aid as the way that we navigate our needs. Then I don't know how, I really don't know how it's going to get any better. I mean, otherwise you, what, unless, unless there's just some sort of revolt or something, but no, no, that's the thing. People need to say, no, they need to unplug the system. It could be state capitalism, like in, in China where, where, it's China's degrading. I mean, we just saw ecological doom in China. Yeah, yeah. They're communists. Okay, well, then we've got capitalism on the other side of the, of the planet. There's us. We've, we're seeing doom. What, what do they have in common? It's the system that they're trying to support. It's, it's like, the, like these impersonal dollar signs yeah. or other currencies, you know. And um, this is what states do. This is why we're anarchists. We don't know what to do about that anarchy. It's the prophetic voice. It's with Jesus, Lao Tzu, what, what anybody who's trying to opt out of the wickedness of the capitalist society, but isn't content to turn towards a dictator uh, along the lines of Marxist-Leninism, along the lines of freaking Fidel Castro, these horrific Chairman Mao ending up starving millions of his own people. These are all horrific things, yeah. right? The only thing that can, that can save us is a Complete transformation of mind. This, friends, is what we're trying to bring to you. We do believe that people have have pulled it off in the past. It's just that in the recent past, the game has been uh, pretty much in in uh, in in the in, in the maybe the sports metaphor. The dominant team has been the the capitalist team, mm-hmm. and as long as you have that, everybody else is going to have to just get on board. You know, no matter how savvy and intelligent Haitians were when Columbus comes to town, they're doomed, and they end up just basically doing mass suicide because they can't they can't you know, figure it out. The other thing that makes me so sad um, is the fact that people don't think that like. That they should like that the a goal in their life really, or it's not realistic to think of being happy. Yeah, and that's no. Th- I was talking about this with the kids. Yeah, people don't. They're, they're, I go, why do they? Stu- why are they students? Why, why are they studying in college? It's not to be happy. Mm-hmm. It's to be successful. Right, and <laughs> I, I, that's I, the problem. And I even remember um, overhearing sort of some of the um, just like one little piece or whatever of talking about um, when you were talking with college students about marriage and yeah. and then it was like, you know, somebody saying like, Oh, well, you know, if like the goal of marriage isn't to be happy, 
Yeah, it's to be fruitful and multiply, but not to be happy. And I was, you know, like, it's interesting that um, that you would enter into a marriage knowing that you weren't going to be happy or that that yeah. shouldn't even be that a consideration. Yeah. That you're preparing all of these things in your life for things that are not intended for happiness and freedom. Yeah. So, I mean, and eventually at what point then, like, does that get old? I, don't know, I guess maybe if you die, if you... That if that dream dies from the very beginning, mm-hmm. then I guess then you are just sort of like that perfect, um, if you will, just robot-ish kind of person just going through life mm-hmm. but not expecting, you know, any joy from yeah. anything really. And so you just you go through the mechanics of this is my duty, this is what I do. Um, and I guess then that's how you get by and you live that life and you think that, you know, a good and faithful servant then is just somebody that has just fulfilled all their their duties, if you will. Yeah. But anyway, I think that there's more to life. I think that the whole reason that we are able to feel things, um, and we can have joy. I I think that there's a bigger piece to it than just sort of these almost non feeling robotic robots Mm. that aren't meant to have any, any joy or any purpose. You mean it might be spiritual as opposed to just like an evolutionary byproduct of our desire to satisfy our uh, survival needs. I think you might be right. And here's the thing that's fun about it. Like if you think about what Alan Watts said about this, he says, yeah, we might blow ourselves up. That might be the story. That might be. But do you know what the Buddhists say? This is pretty funny. The Buddhists, uh, not all Buddhists, but there's a a specific kind of Buddhist um, eschatology. It's like a theory of the end times that seven suns will come close to the earth and just burn the whole thing up. Mm. Um, I don't know if they believe it literally, but I think the point of it is sometimes we can get rid of our egos. Sometimes we can detach from things and owning things, Mm -hmm. but we still kind of want to own part of the legacy of existence. Hmm. And the universe is, according to scientists, eventually going to just go to, to heat death. It doesn't matter. Like from what astral physicists say, it may be a long, 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 long time from now. But no matter how environmentally sound we are, the whole thing just turns to dust. We'll turn to dust in no time at all. <laughs> this will be the distant past. And in cosmic time, in no time at all, no matter what we do, everything disintegrates. Now, you might go with something like Stephen Hawking, and I kind of like this, um, and I think it kind of is something we put into our Tao Te Ching, where you watch the universe explode from the center, and then it blasts up like a big, beautiful uh, fire uh, firework, and then it falls back to the center. Yeah. And then from the center, it becomes a hyper-dense uh, black of... hole, and then it explodes again, and it breathes. This yeah. would be a Hindu idea in that um, you, you were saying, like, you know, every hundred billion years... Um, Shiva, you know, says, how, wow, this is, this is a, we've done this before, (laughs) you know? Mm -hmm. And and so I don't, I don't want to leave you dear listener with despair, but I do think it's important sometimes for us to, to focus on what are the beauties of the moment that we can enjoy knowing the fact that, yeah, like our lives aren't permanent and our legacies aren't permanent and the whole universe might not be permanent, you know, might not be. Right. And uh, from, from a, you know, at least this one naturalistic way of looking at it. Um, I still have this very deep abiding conviction, whether or not it's based on anything that you dear listeners should listen to. But just so you know, um, I don't know exactly how I can explain it to you or why I believe it, but I believe that there is a, uh, what Plato calls the Cora, that there's a timeless core at uh, what you might call the Tao at the center of the wheel. 
and that that eternal place is um, somewhere where you can see past, present, and future in all of its beauty. I believe this is true. There's some kind of spiritual space for that. Yeah. Maybe there's not. Maybe that's me not being a good Buddhist um, in terms of, of, of coming to terms with the void. But I think it's kind of true. I don't know why, but I think it's kind of true. And, um, and I think that many mystics have recognized this. Mm-hmm. But also mystics have recognized that the first step to getting to that contentment with that beautiful picture of a timeless spiritual reality... You can only really get there if you first pass through the veil of the fire sermon. You first have to torch it all. You have to go through the thought experiment of saying, we're lonely in a lonely universe that has no inherent meaning. There's meaning that we're going to create out of it. Um, there is, uh, there is a, a doom to the whole universe that's coming in the end of the story. But why is that such a problem? Why do we need things to be eternal? Or can we allow each beautiful flower as it comes and goes, can we allow that to be eternally a real thing, um, a real beauty, uh, just, just beholding that flower? And friends, when we look into each other's eyes, when we hear each other's voices, we hear the vibrations of the holy. We see into the eyes of the holy. We're not atheists in that sense, right. you know. Um, you know the question is, what do you want to call the Tao? Do you want to call it God? I, you know, know so many of us have had such a hard time with people that want to talk about what God is or who God is that it's sometimes helpful to just to dispense with the whole thing. Um, we've had such a weird anxiety about the afterlife and hell that we just need to dispense with the whole thing because whatever it is, it's not what they were telling us when we were in Sunday school. That's for dang sure. That's yeah, they're false idols. <laughs> yeah, but. That said, there is a piece that comes from being content to observe the story in its beauty, in its momentary beauty and its, in its cosmic billion year, you know, run, billions of years run, you know. So whatever paths that this conversation has uh, led you down or whatever, perhaps whatever um, you're, you're thinking, um, I know that I believe and I, I, I know for you too, Jeff, that mm-hmm. That definitely, I think that we know. Well, we've got a hunch. We've got a hunch. That there is something about being a bodhisattva, that yeah. before you go into the pure land that you can return and you could say, you know what? Let's not give up on this. Let's like Guan Yin, let's douse the fires of hell with our own tears. And that's where I find deep peace upon peace. Thank you so much, friends, for joining us for this episode of the Protect Your Noggin podcast. You want to join in on the conversation? We'd love to respond to your questions or comments on a future show. You can record a message by going to protectyournoggin.org and clicking on the blue voice message button. And don't worry about getting it perfect since you'll have five minutes and a chance to preview your message before sending. You can also send an email if you're not comfortable with leaving a voice message. Please also follow us on Twitter at the PYNP. And rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you found this show of any help, uh, why not share it with a friend? Until next time, peace upon peace, friends. But he said there wasn't any letter. He said I was going out of my mind. Not going out of your mind. You're slowly and systematically being driven out of your mind. Why? Why? Perhaps because you found this letter low too much.